Assalamu alaikum everyone. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Welcome to day 13 of uh, Surah al-Baqarah. Um, the, the intention is to finish today um, with the Surah and then leave the entire next Halakha session for Q&A. So I can't believe that after 13, 14 total sessions. We're going to be at the end of the surah. It's been an incredible journey. I know people have reached out to me to tell me how how incredible it's been and how much it's made a difference um, in their lives. And so I'm I'm so excited um, to just still have two more days to eke out. So, but if you have any questions, definitely um, send them uh, to me by email. Um, so hopefully, you know, we I know that you know 13 days worth of questions. Hopefully, will be a lot. So we'll try and cover as much as we can, inshallah, it should be wonderful. Um, just to uh, give an update, last Halakha I was talking about Julius Jones, an African-American who was um, on death's row and about to be put to death, and um, alhamdulillah, if you've been following it or if you haven't been following it, um, at, in the last hours, um, the, uh, the Oklahoma governor did stay his execution, um, so the good news is that you know he was not put to death. But the bad news is that he continued, uh, the governor continued to ignore the recommendation of the parole board and commuted his sentence to life without the possibility of parole. So he's alive, but if they're go going to put him back into solitary confinement, I'm not sure if that's better. So I, I, I hope and pray that they're continuing to fight that fight, but at least they have more time since he is alive. And inshallah, I hope that um, you know this is something that, that people will continue to, to fight for. Um, so thank you. I know some people had uh, let me know that they did make some calls on his behalf um, because they, they heard about it here. So I'm, I'm really grateful and thank you so much for that. Um, okay, I wanted to just uh, highlight, I know we, we have been doing, um, Ramin's been doing an amazing job cutting some excerpts and posting them on YouTube. Um, and you know, these are like wonderful um, nuggets of information um, and hopefully, you know, is, is a nice way to entice people to see, you know, what we're up to um, without having to jump into a four, five, six hour halakha. Um, and so we had a really lovely, um, this was a clip that um, Ramin just put up, which was, was this from yesterday's, uh, or last, the last halakha? Uh, yeah, day 12. Okay, from day 12. And so it's called, What Pain and Hardship Can Teach You? Um, it's a really wonderful, um, you know, it's a six minute video. It's a reflection that um, Rosheikh was talking about how our society is so quick to want to just address things like pain and, and anxiety um, or depression with a pill um, and that there is you know another side of it which is you know taking those you know the pain and the anxiety um, and turning it to a, a way to learn and elevate um, you know and so if you've been following the things that we've been talking about here you know obviously that's a beautiful quote and I think if you only hear that excerpt in isolation without knowing all of that then you would expect some of the comments that we got. And so I wanted to just share a comment, and I appreciate the comments because it's important to highlight these issues. Um, I think some of the reaction was, um, well, let me read you this one. So, Salam Sheikh, I much appreciate your scholarship, but this is just sending the wrong message. It is better to leave these issues to mental health professionals, such as, for example, the experts at the Stanford Muslim Mental Health and Psychology Lab. Thank you for your good work on Islamic theology and jurisprudence. Um, and um, so I just wanted to comment on that. I mean, clearly, if you know anything about what we're doing, you know, we are not advocates of throwing out modern medicine or mental health. I mean, clearly, you, you know, you have to try 
every um, available option and technology for you. I mean, some, sometimes mental health issues are, a, you know, a, an issue of physiology or chemistry, and you know they need to be treated with medical professionals. And so I think it's a mistake if someone watches a six-minute clip and somehow thinks that they need to comment and say, you know, better to leave this to mental health professionals as if this is a replacement for mental health care that someone might need. So you know. I just wanted to say that. Hopefully it's not something that needed to be said, but the fact that someone commented, you know, we did then follow up by putting up a disclaimer and saying, you know, this is obviously not advice to, you know, not get medical treatment that, you know, you might potentially need. Um, but the point is that there is a spiritual component that is often overlooked. And so, you know, that is uh, something important. And I think it's an incredible bit of wisdom because a lot of times, you know, people um, just want to quell the pain or silence the pain um, and, and not necessarily see it as a potential for learning or elevation. And certainly, um, you know, we as people know have dealt with so many different health issues and um, have been through, you know, endless amounts of medication and pain pills and all of that kind of stuff. So we certainly have a lot of experience with you know, what the limitations and benefits are of you know, medicine that you take to address things like pain. Um, so, you know, this, this is also, you know, an insight as to our own personal experience. Um, and also, I, you know, I wanted to comment on this last little part, which is thank you for your good work on Islamic theology and jurisprudence, which, I mean, I'm kind of cynical sometimes, so I take that as a very polite way of saying stay in your own lane, right? Like, thank you for your, you know, focus on law and theology and jurisprudence and stay out of medicine or, you know, mental health. And so it reminded me of um, a story that I just thought I would share. Um, this was a world that I was introduced to when I, I you know, met the sheikh and, you know, before we, or actually after we got married, it was just amazing to, you know, as a convert, you come in and you kind of learn what you get at the mosque. And um, so it's a whole new world that you get exposed to when you're married to a sheikh. And so this was one of the things that was so fascinating to me that I thought I would just share is you know how he had his training um, you know studying at the feet of sheikhs and you know in in the whole halakha system um, and you know certainly I, I'm not an expert on that so I really can't speak to the details but I know that it was just so fascinating um, how sheikh was educated um, under you know so many other sheikhs before him and that there was a very um, you know sophisticated system of learning that just doesn't exist now it's been pretty much destroyed or if it exists it's somewhere probably you know in in the underground um, but I, what he told me were the stories about how, you know, as you studied and as you progressed, you, you know, would, would earn like ijazas or licenses. So you would maybe gain mastery over a particular subject matter. And, you know, the, the um, sheikh that you would study under would, you know, issue an, an ijazah if you mastered whatever topic. And then perhaps you could go on to the next level. But at some point, you have to reach a point where you actually choose a specialty. So you could either go, you know, to recitation, you could go to, um, you know, exorcism, you could go to different kinds of things. And he chose um, the the most difficult path, which is law and jurisprudence. And the reason why it's the most difficult is that in order to gain mastery, you know, where you are actually, you know, issuing, whether it's fatwas or, you know, scholarship or knowledge that affects people, you know, in, in the entirety of their life, you have to have mastered so many different systems of knowledge. And it just, this, you know, this comment reflects, again, kind of what we covered in the last halakha, which is the idea of law almost as a proxy for morality and agency. It's kind of like, you know, we have a tendency in the modern day to just say, 
you know, oh, this hadith says this, so therefore that's the ruling, you know, regardless of the nuance, regardless of any other factor or other systems of knowledge. It's, you know, we, we have this tendency to just pluck little things and then say, oh, that, okay, now I've done my, my, my duty as opposed to, you know, with regard to um, what is moral or ethical or, you know, Islamic. Um, and that's just simply not the case. Um, so this, you know, this comment really reflects, again, that, that sort of mentality, and it's just a nice, um, it's sort of a stark contrast to what we've been learning here, um, especially in Surah Baqarah, that, you know, every, it's, you can't just point to, you know, an isolated positive law or hadith, but there's a whole world of morality and ethics that needs to, you know, go into that. And so as a scholar, you know, when you're talking about whether it's, you know, mental health or things like that, I mean, this is, you know, th this, we're com I think that from my perspective, it's wisdom that comes from a different place um, that integrates all of these different systems of knowledge. And so it's really not appropriate to say, stay in your lane, law, you know, you're about law. And so that means you really can't speak about anything else. So I just wanted to share that just my two cents and, I, you know, for what that's worth. And I am so, so excited um, to, inshallah, inshallah, we'll see if we actually finish. You know, our, our intention is always to say, okay, we're gonna conclude, but please don't rush. Take your time. If we need to take another day or two, I think we would all be very happy so that we don't um, miss anything that, you know, we, we won't have a chance to learn again in the future. So thank you so much for joining us and inshallah, look forward to another amazing session. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen, subhanallah al-Ali al-Azim. Allahumma salli wa sallim wa barik ala Muhammad wa ala alihi wa ashabihi wa tala'a bi ihsanin ila yawm al-Din. Allahumma shrah li sadri wa yassir li amri wa hlul uqdatan min lisani yafqahu qawli ya rabbil alameen. Tawakkalna Allah, la hawla la quwta illa billahi alayhi wa sallam. You know, I didn't, um, of course, I'm, the, I, I don't, I don't know what Grace is going to talk about uh, in her comments, so I wasn't aware of, but I, I'm, and I, I don't care what, what the comments are, to be quite honest, but what, um, but I, I think it raises something that I do want to comment on before we, we go on. Um, if you notice, um, life cannot be cleanly segmented and compartmentalized as we often try to do with the um, it's one thing to be to be trained professionally so you can undertake a, a licensed job so in other words you are going to earn a living performing a certain profession but it is quite another to use the claim of professionalism to try to clear space from any countervailing discourses 
it's quite another to claim professionalism in order to claim competence over a space as if life doesn't present us with constantly overlapping moral spaces. So it's put it differently. It's quite another, it's one thing to say you need a license to practice law and to give legal advice. But it is quite another if a psychologist critiques the way law handles an issue for me to come to say to the psychologist, well, stay in your lane, you don't know anything about law because you're not a lawyer. That would strike us as patently absurd. It is, again, one thing to say, in order to practice law, you need to be licensed as a lawyer. In order to practice mental health, you need to be licensed as a mental health provider. But it's quite another to use the claim of professionalism in order to censor overlapping considerations. So if you notice, law deals with mental health all the time. We take someone and we hold this person culpable and we make a judgment about their mental state, about their intentions, about their legal culpability, and sometimes even their moral culpability. And we might, in some cases, bring in mental health providers to testify, but ultimately the judgment rests with law. So law overlaps with mental health all the time. But even what Grace was alluding to, in my view, you cannot be a faqih in the modern age. You cannot be a faqih in the modern age without educating yourself in numerous overlapping fields because you are representing Sharia and Sharia is about what Allah is telling us about how we should live our lives. You can't do that unless you take your job extremely seriously. So of course this person has no clue that that through my education, I've taken numerous courses in psychology, enough for a major. There was one course that I didn't take in order to actually have a double major in psychology. But other than that, it doesn't matter because also this person is not aware that I've read more books than in psychology than the vast majority of licensed psychologists. The differences is I read psychology not to provide mental health advice in, in a clinical sense. I read psychology to understand when Allah talks about culpability and Allah talks about ma'roof and Allah talks about ihsan 
and Allah talks about fitra, how to understand what Allah is saying. I cannot make sense of anything that Allah is saying if I don't understand something about human psychology. So that type of comment, thanks for your insights on law and theology, but basically stay in your lane because that's an implication only betrays this person's small-mindedness and remarkable ignorance. I don't know who this person is, and I don't care to know who this person is, but only betrays the amazing amount of jahl, pure jahl, in what law, theology, morality, ethics are about. Now, it is obvious I think it is obvious, it only takes the type of petty, um, petty uh, uh, takedowns that Muslims are so good at doing to each other. Muslims are, in, are, are diseased with jealousies and feeling threatened by each other and feeling insecure vis-a-vis -vis each other. Muslims are allow themselves to be flagellated and abused and degraded by the other, by the non-Muslim, by the white-skinned prototype, by the colonial master. But with each other, they act like so many colonized people. They're petty, they engage in constant infighting. They constantly snap at each other like dogs when they are under stress and pressure and tension. Poor dogs, when you stress them out, they start snapping at each other. They don't snap at their owner. Muslims, that's precisely what they do. It is precisely a, a, a display of that phenomenon. You know, let me flex my muscles at my fellow Muslim rather than understand what the heck they're talking about and rather than worry about my position professionally vis-a-vis -vis the world at large, whether in fact anyone in the field of psychology actually respects me rather than flexing muscles at a fellow Muslim. It irritates me. It irritates me because it is symptomatic of precisely what Muslims do all the time. It is clear what I'm talking about, and, I'm, and I don't need to be a licensed psychologist to say this, that I, Khaled Abulfad, learned a great deal from pain. And that my experiences in life and everything that I was taught from my teachers, from my shiuch, and from my parents is that pain, and in fact, I would go even further, from my God, that pain is a mihna. And every mihna is a trial and a tribulation, but also an opportunity for growth. That when Allah says, لا يكلف الله نفسا إلا وسعها that Allah does not ask a soul to bear more than it can. 
then Allah is telling me something about the psychology of a mihna. That when I am tried, I should not break, I should not crumble, I should not surrender. I must learn from the challenges and the tests that Allah presents me with. That, of course, has does that discount the possibility that there are people who are really ill, who really need medicine? Obviously not. You and whoever this person is are educated enough to have that as a fair assumption in the way we relate to each other in our discourse. Unless you're being petty, being like a crab in a barrel, or being like a dog under stress, that's a fair assumption. You are educated, I am educated, and the fair assumption is that we have these cases where there is a chemical imbalance or some type of clinical issue that requires intervention by highly specialized people, which, by the way, by the way, in my book are not psychologists. It's really psychiatrists, medically trained people. Psychologists are as specialized as I am because they don't have medical training. They like to pretend that they have a specialty. But you read enough psychology, you can be as knowledgeable as a psychologist. But anyway, and this is not to take away from psychologists. My mother was a psychologist. May Allah bless her soul. And of course, have enormous respect for her and her knowledge and her expertise. But my mother would never make a comment, an idiotic comment like that. A fair assumption in discourse is that, of course, we're not talking about clinically, clinical cases. We are talking about general morality that we can impart to our children. And when I tell my, ch my child, don't surrender to depression, fight depression, learn from depression, learn from anxiety. In fact, there is just a book that I've read that talks about how new clinical studies are showing that depression and anxiety are, of course, they use evolutionary logic, are evolution's way of teaching us w methods of survival. And in fact, that they are, in many occasions, healthy responses that the modern human being has forgotten how to react to productively rather than destructively. It's absurd that it irritates me because Muslims irritate me. The, the, the way Muslims are petty and small and narrow-minded with each other and snap at each other and take down each other or, and, and quickly threatened by each other means we will never emerge as a dignified people on the human stage. We will never reach the normative demands of Surat al-Baqarah upon us as long as we remain 
in our psychology, and I hear, I notice, I use the word psychology, in our psychology, a thoroughly colonized people. Displaying all the psychological symptoms of a thoroughly colonized people. Do you need a license to say something like that? That would be the height of absurdity. Have you read Charles Taylor and how much psychology is in Charles Taylor's philosophy? Or should I say to Charles Taylor, don't say anything about social thought because just worry about theology and law. It's absurd. It's ridiculous. And the sad thing is that it, it, it's only in Muslim circles that you can say something like that and go around feeling proud of yourself and don't realize the extent to which you've exposed yourself as a thorough and complete idiot. May Allah protect us from our own idiocies and the idiocies of our brethren. Let's proceed. Uh, where are we? Okay, so where we stopped, stopped off, where we stopped, remember Surah Al-Baqarah talks about an exploitative financial institution that not only existed in Mecca, but by the way, and I didn't say this last halqa, it has been in existence for centuries. If you read, for instance, what the Bible reports about what Jesus says to the money lenders in the temple, some of the harshest discourses that are reported or attributed to Jesus is in response to this same financial institution because the 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 temple there the well it's there are depending on the historian you read either the money lenders were inside the temple in the outer um or the outer um, area of the temple or they would they had set up shops around the temple and Jesus is constantly confronting them and condemning the exploitative their exploitative financial practices and basically telling them that all pretenses that you are religious, moral people are entirely false. And so money lending in this way has been a recurrent institution in the Near East um, with, with fairly sometimes complex infrastructure. But what is consistent about it is that it preserved class privilege and it perpetuated um, the 
uh, the disempowerment of people who would fall into the trap of needing to go to the money lenders. Um, now, once the Quran talks about this institution and condemns it, and in fact describes describes it in rather very strong terms, both as if these people are possessed by shaitan, the clear implication is, is that an obsessive love of money or a preoccupation with earning money regardless of the morality of how you earn it, if all you care about is making the money, then it is, the Quran describes it as if you are possessed by shaitan, a demon. But then also, a very powerful condemnation that the people who translate this demonic attitude into an actual exploitative practices, it is as if they are at war with Allah and His Prophet. And the Quran uses this expression, at war with Allah and the Prophet, in a few incident, incident, instances, but in every instance, it connotes an absolute condemnation of the practice. But then the Quran goes on to continue to talk about debt itself. And as we said last Hanukkah, that it advises people that their attitude towards the need of other human beings, when other human beings need, have a need and they need to borrow money, is to be patient, to be understanding, to be benevolent. And that even if that they don't need the debt, if they don't need the money paid back, to just forgive it. And that's, of course, a tough thing, because you ask yourself, do I really need the money back? Or is it just that, um, you know, all the, psych oh, again, psychological, all the psychological things that we tell ourselves, right? You know, uh, sometimes we even say we want the money back as a matter of principle, just because I don't want to feel taken advantage of. Uh, well, if you're listening to what Allah is telling you, forgiving a debt that you, if you don't need the money, is always better for you. Even if people say that, you're kind and silly and stupid and, you know, um, uh, naive and, you know, all the type of stuff that people, all the types of things that people say about people who are generous and moral. There is um, a, there, there is a, um, Rather, there, there are traditions that 
the Prophet ﷺ, there, there are many traditions attributed to the Prophet about forgiveness of debt. Um, but there are a few traditions that were reported to have been said in the context of Surah Al-Baqarah's discourse and are reported widely in Tafsir um, and Hadith literature, obviously, uh, in, within this context. One such tradition says, من أنظر معصرا أو وضع عنه أظله الله في ظله في ظل عرشه يوم لا ظل إلا ظله uh, and, and another example is من أحب أن تستجاب دعوته وتكشف وتكشف كربته فليسر على على المعصر. and من أنظر معصرا فله في كل يوم صدقة أجر صدقة and so on. okay so what what are these traditions saying that first the Prophet ﷺ comments that those who under Mu'asura means someone Mu'asur is someone who is in need, someone who, who is experiencing financial hardship. That's a Mu'asur. It's not necessarily a Faqir is someone who's poor, but a, a Mu'asur is someone who experiences financial hardship. So, means someone who helps someone in financial hardship and is patient with them. So that they lend them money and help them patiently until they emerge out of this financial hardship. Or, means you help without expecting a payback. So the Prophet says that whoever does that, either helping patiently or even better, helping with no expectation of return, that such people will be in a special status in the hereafter that Allah will uh, encompass them under Allah's dhil or Allah's dhil is Allah's shadow but it's, it's not, you know, it idiomatically doesn't translate because it's um, being in a shadow doesn't necessarily mean a good thing in, in English but idiomatically in Arabic when you say that someone will be under someone else's shadow means that you will be under their care. So basically that they will come in the hereafter and they will be, have a special status with Allah that Allah will take care of them as special standouts, people who especially stand out. Um, other hadiths that were also reported in this context that whoever 
wants his dua answered should help a Muslim. again either through helping them and being um, patient with them or helping them without an expectation of return and that's always superior and then there are many other hadiths that were reported in different contexts that say um, that whoever lends someone in hardship money and is patient with them that Allah for every day that they are patient with the loan that Allah bestows enormous gifts and bounties upon them you know in the hadith the again in, in medieval narratives which is always taken towards exaggeration in medieval narratives that that for every day Allah builds a castle for them in the hereafter and of course that's not a literal castle but it means that they have a very special status for every day that they are um, they are patient so w- why am I underscoring this I underscore this because we are accustomed to saying tell me what the rules are about the waiting period on talaq tell me what the rules are about um you know the the technicalities of um whether this divorce is valid or is not invalid or whatever but we often come to what is a higher order normative command. Higher order means something more foundational. We often, often because the, the modern mind is empirically oriented. Empirically oriented means that the modern mind is raised to relate to what it can see and touch. Is this psychology, people? <laughs> drives me insane. The modern mind relates to what it can see and it can touch. And we, in our school system, when we insist, you know, we send our kids to school, all the years in school, they are not tested, unless they go to special schools or, you know, some... They're not tested on their power of imagination. They're not tested on their, uh, you know, normally their artistic abilities. They're not tested on the way that they can relate to nature or the way that they can hear the sounds of nature or the way that they can notice things in, in creation. They're tested on verifiable empirically, empirical knowledge. And so we, this is the age of empiricism, uh, which is, uh, you know, in some meta histories is often contrasted to the age of magical thinking. Um, but anyway, and because of that, when this modern mind goes to law and morality, you are very different than your grandparents or your great-grandparents. Your great-grandparents could be raised 
where someone's, you know, saying, always do what is kind. And everything in their upbringing, in their culture, that was not yet thoroughly empirical, they could relate to that in so many nuanced ways that is completely alien to the modern mind. The modern mind tends to not know how to relate to abstractions and generalities and say, okay, what's concrete? What's specific? Give me a rule. Something, you know, something I can, I, black and white, like the type of answer I would give on an SAT exam or an LSAT exam or an MCATS exam, you know, all the, the, the exams that are administered all around the world to assess um, intellectual ability. And as a result, if you talk to your grandparents, and I'm sure of this, if they grew up in a Muslim society, or your or the you know just much older generations, they will tell you that yes, you know, in in the society we, we grew up, it was people lending other people money and being patient about them and even forgiving the loans altogether, there was, it was practiced not just widely, but it was very meaningful for a person to say in very, to them in very concrete terms, well, you know, my ajr is with Allah, and to think very concretely about this, far more concrete than you know, the, the black and white issues that we seek. But with the march of empiricism, we've lost our ability to relate to these values. So even you come today and you tell a person, if you don't need the money, just forgive it. And it is extremely destabilizing. Again, is this psychology? You know, it is extremely, it makes them feel anxious. Uh, so I am supposed to evaluate whether I really need the money or not. And this is what Allah expects me to do. Where is the black letter law? Where is the black and white yardstick? But you know what? In my view, this is not just a movement towards empiricism in the modern age, it is a movement towards amorality. As human beings, yes, they gain so much by all the, the, the scientific standards that they developed to relate to the world, but they also lost a great deal. I mean, think of it, we, we've gained the ability to put organs from one body into another body. But with that knowledge came a huge moral responsibility. And I can tell you that whether in medical schools or because I've done a lot of reading on that, 
or in law schools or in business schools, the way we teach ethics is basically like just get it out of the way so we can say we've taught ethics. And and even, even the way ethics are taught, they're reduced into black letter law so that law students or medical students can relate to them rather than these where you develop the moral character of the being which requires investing in a human being's spirituality the way that they relate to a higher power which of course our modern educational systems cannot do and in fact are instructed not to do you can't talk to students about their spirituality that's not professional in the way we've constructed our modern educational systems this is part of why and the, the I mean and if Muslims rise to the challenge of being shuhada ala nas this this challenge of shahada where they actually then can provide a corrective spectrum as to the trajectory of humanity since all the major religious traditions retreated and secularism in the sense of a religious traditions have stepped to the forefront um, and and secularism co-opted religion so that religion often became something that is marshaled in the service of empirical causes like colonialism i mean the 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 listen once upon a time people who were businessmen merchants they can go travel to java and trade with java and through trade suddenly find muslim populations sprouting these merchants were not trained theologians or trained jurists but the way human beings related to each other you a human being before the age of empiricism could deal with a merchant and could see simply the morality of the merchant and be so blown away because to them that is so much more meaningful than any scientific gadgets this merchant might have that they immediately say oh my god i have to follow your religion the modern age doesn't work that way the modern age we don't relate to morality that way anymore so someone can lend me money and can say you need this money i forgive the debt i will take this i might be even a little suspicious as to why i might be grateful you know you're a wonderful person but I might think maybe you're a bit naive. And, you know, I might have all types of psychological reactions to this. But 
the age where a simple act of generosity like this would say, oh my God, you represent to me a moral universe that I must discover. And so I become a Muslim. And so through trade, through merchants, Islam spread in, in, in Indonesia far more effectively than it ever spread in Egypt, for instance. Right? Because Indonesia became largely Muslim, nearly in its entirety. While Egypt, the Coptic population never converted. The Christian population in Syria never converted. It was the way people related to morality was at a much more fundamental and psychologically impacted, impactful way than the modern mind. Now, all of this, the reason I'm flagging all of this is because we must learn to relate to the Quran and understand that when Allah talks about something like that and the way we relate to forgiveness of debt or reacting to the hardship of a fellow human being, as I will talk about, in, inshallah, in the summary, that that is at a foundational level, at, at, at a root cause level, is far more fundamental than a positive legal command that only comes as a result of the moral foundations. And we'll see more about this in a second. Okay. So then Surah Al-Baqarah moves on to talk about another recurrent issue and it, it is truly remarkable because here here Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala intervenes with something that, um, how do I put it? Um, that in the historical context was considered um, as aggressive or as unusual as demanding that women inherit, for instance. And that is the process of documentation of debts. There are reports, none of them reliable, about that claim that there was an occasion of a revelation of this verse about the, the writing of debts, a dispute that arose, but it, it's not, the, the chain of transmission is very problematic. But anyway. So, يَا أَيُّهَا الَّذِينَ أَمَنُوا إِذَا تَدَيَنْتُمْ بِدَيْنٍ إِلَىٰ أَجَلٍ مُسَمَّى فَاكْتُبُوهُ وَلْيَكْتُبْ بَيْنَكُمْ كَاتِبٌ بِعَدْلٍ وَلَا يَأْبَ كَاتِبُوا أَنْ يَكْتُبْ 
كما علمه الله فليكتب وليملل الذي عليه الحق وليتقي الله ربه ولا يبخس منه ولا يبخس منه شيئا and so on so the instruction notice how many times the word يكتب the كتابة to write is mentioned in a single ayah and so if there is a debt between you then it the instruction is to write it and and the instruction is even goes a step further and instructs who should be the one that dictates the actual language that verifies the debt and it should be the person alayhi al-haqq the person who is borrowing the money this in itself if you just if if you realized if you had study if you study if had studied comparative law and legal history this is a huge step that you are saying it's not the lender that writes or that dictates the terms so it is saying the person who takes on the financial obligation has to agree or has to it has to in fact is the one that's dictating the terms meaning that they have to be fully aware of what that contract says this is no small point in comparative law it takes human legal thinking centuries and you know even the idea that we we, uh, we 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 it takes centuries to come to the point that saying well eventually law adopts an assumption that you've actually read and you are aware of all the terms that's why you know when you buy a car or buy a fridge or buy whatever uh, uh you're often surprised what the actual terms of what you've signed say law adopts a fiction and this is by the way it was adopted both in the common law and the civil law system that you have read and you are aware and and it's because even if you have not read then you should have read the terms and that's sort of the, the legal assumption but the Quranic treatment is quite remarkable because this is not a writing society and this is not a society that um, is accustomed to reducing transactions into writing in fact among the so-called hypocrites part of their criticism of this Quranic uh, revelation is that they say something like uh, or something like that uh, that oh look Muhammad's God is teaching people not to trust each other because in this culture you know People are bound by their word, and they 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 give you know I I'm, my word is 
these are the terms for the sale and they're bound by them and but the the thing though is that in Meccan and Medinian culture there is an enormous amount of feuds that go back that are centuries old because of people disagreeing about the promise made. No, these were not the terms I had promised. No, these are the terms. And for generation after generation, they would fight about what the terms were. Or And, and it would, of course, start out as a financial matter that turned into a prolonged blood feud. So, so several principles. Avoid legal conflicts by writing and the one who bears financial responsibility or the, the buyer rather than the seller must be in the Quranic ideal it must be the one that dictates the terms or must be the one that provides the actual in, and in Islamic law, there are like long debates about well, what if the seller has for you know pro formats or or um, uh, like sukuk, um, um, like ready-made contracts. So and so then they they understood from the Quranic prescription that the issue is whether the buyer is fully aware of the terms. And whether the buyer has an opportunity, or the borrower either, has an opportunity to vary the terms of the contract. Uh, or whether this was sort of a contract of adhesion, where the, the, the buyer had no, no opportunity to negotiate terms or vary terms and so on. And that's a you know, long, complicated legal issue. Okay. And... And then it it particularly talks about what happens if a party in the contract doesn't have full mental capacity. So, فَإِذْ كَانَ الَّذِي عَلَيْهِ الْحَقُّ سَفِيهًا أَوْ ضَعِيفًا أَوْ لَا يَسْتَطِيعُ أَنْ يُمْلِ So if the if the person is has some reduced mental capacity, and there are of course, as you can imagine, long legal discussion about what a safih is, what a da'if is, or someone who is unable to dictate terms then you bring a representative to dictate the terms. And then it enshrines another principle that was radical for that society and that time. And that is that no legal responsibility can be borne by witnesses that witnesses are not part to a contract. 
they are only responsible for witnessing the authenticity of the dynamic and the process and the signature. But the old Near Eastern practice that existed in some areas of Arabia, of Yemen, of, what, of Iraq, that witnesses would be consider, considered sureties to a contract. And so often what the, the, the old legal practice was, the, the, lend, the lender, the stronger party, would require that the borrower would bring their witnesses with them and if you cannot satisfy the debt from the borrower you can satisfy the debt from the witnesses to the contract because the witnesses were considered to have acted as sureties for the borrower and the Quran comes and says, basically, this exploitative practice, because it was exploitative, because it was only practices by the powerful against the weak. That, you know, I'm not going to lend you money, and I'm not going to give you what you need, unless you bring your witnesses, but then I can go after your witnesses. And even in, in old Near Eastern practice, it is not just that you could go after the witnesses financially, but you could actually make, you could trap the witnesses into indentured servitude. So basically, they're sort of like slaves for you, paying off the debt that they witnessed. So that's why the Quran comes in and says that practice has to end. Then notice what was again at the time quite radical that women can witness a contract and Some of the most interesting reports we have about this is, I forgot who it was that commented in response to this Quranic um, uh, revelation, and are women ever present in a contract? Like, what, what, the, what is the Quran talking about? Women can witness a contract? Well, since when do women are women present in contracts? Now, a couple of things I want to say about this. And again, you know, you're free to, to, to take it or leave it or accept it or not. That's not, um, you know. The... When the Qur'an makes an intervention like this, when the Qur'an makes an intervention that is not 
responsive to actual social practices or that does not in fact simply take what the social practices that existed as they are but actually injects in you practice into a non-existing social practice such as women witnessing contracts I what I pay attention to is the obvious question of why so why if if women are not present in contracts and we don't have a single report anywhere that women would be the one acting as in in business settings as witnesses why does the quran come and say and women that that a a a um assertive assertive or affirmative step is what catches my attention second whenever the quran sets a law and that law is muhallal muhallal means that there is a justification given for the law then the established legal qaida the legal rule is that if Allah says here is the way I am interjecting in this matter and I am giving you an explanation Allah sometimes decrees laws and doesn't give us an explanation and like Salah right then you can't there is then then it's just a rule and it's a rule that we can speculate as to the wisdom behind the rule but there is no operative cause there's no actual justification given to you by the musharra by the legislator but when Allah gives a justification then the legal principle or the foundational uh, uh, maxim of law is that the law the it is the law acts like a a or the law acts like a door with a handle the handle is the operative cause and the operative cause controls the door whether when the operative cause whether the operative cause exists or doesn't exist it tells us how to handle the law so what is remarkable here is that one the interjection of women and then it as if Allah knew that the objection to women is that they have no experience and what business is it of theirs so you get a moderated interjection by saying okay well two women and responds to the inevitable objection and that's the illa and that's the muallal that 
so that if one of one of these women forgets, then the other can remind her. As if saying, you Allah knows that you will object that women don't have experience. So I'm telling you, well, in order to satisfy your concerns and your worries, it's two women. Now, interestingly, I, the, the, in Islamic legal practice, there are institutions that developed centuries later of professional witnesses in response to this Quranic prescription. And these professional witnesses, basically, they would be attached to the uh, judiciary. So you, the, the court system, one of the branches of the court system are those that have been certified by the court as credible witnesses. Odul. And why is that important? Because you go and you pay them and they come and they witness your contracts. And you know that their testimony that it's going to be good because the court has already pre-certified them. So I tried to find out if all the references as to professional witnesses in the Islamic legal practice, whether I could find a reference ever to women being acting as professional witnesses. And maybe there is, but I've never found one. And that's very interesting because despite the Quranic interjection, social practice which is wedded to its patriarchal habits couldn't if i am correct and in fact there i mean it, i've learned through hard way that would be very careful when you generalize about anything in islamic history because whatever you generalize about there will be some exception somewhere, sometime. Islamic history is extremely complex, extremely vast. You always find things. So I have not found a, a reference to women as professional witnesses, which is very interesting because I don't think that patriarchal institutions, which is again part of human history, unmistakable part of human history, um, could knew what to do. And it's not they knew what to do with two women with the two women part. They didn't know what to do with women witnessing contracts part in the first place. And even jurists go more than that and you know then they try to say well you know yeah you uh, women's testimony two women equal one man it could be in debts and financial contracts but not in marriages meaning women cannot act as witnesses in a marriage contract and you ask the question well why well because it, we have a prescription to, and then they, they always in some type of argument about why you can't extend 
that the qiyas from a that an analogy an extension of rule by analogy from the field of debts and and sales does not extend to marriages or bequests or inheritances so the 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 dynamic is an ex, dynamic of exclusion of women so you know i get this question quite often when say well you know how come women are equal to men and i say well the problem is to get women involved in the first place at all you know even in 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 growing up in in where i grew up in egypt and kuwait it was i you know i've never encountered a situation where a woman was witnessed a sales contract or a debt or even in a marriage i mean it's very radical um till today but my argument to you as uh, when i wrap inshallah wrap up surah al-baqarah to you is that the exceptional act was allah telling us include the testimony of women which means that once there is no reason to accommodate the biases of patriarchy in fact allah's interjection is like a normative trajectory allah is challenging us to get to that point I don't think that by by when Allah it provides explanation, the explanation is so that if one of them forgets, the other will remind it. It's for who? It's responding to a human anxiety, human concern. Well, if that anxiety is not justified anymore and not present anymore, then what's the reason for for it's if if the, uh, if we get to the point where we know that there are w- women who are far more competent in financial and economic issues and transactional issues and legal issues than men we get to the point where we know that it, it, you know a woman sitting on a supreme court knows far more law than you know w- w- it would be blatantly absurd to still say, "Well, so if one, you know, one of them forgets, the other can remind her." Um, okay, we'll, we'll inshallah come back to that. Okay. Um, there is an exception to this rule and again I'm, I'm simplifying a lot of complexity in legal arguments but um, that if there is um, a circulating trade in other words there is and this by the way again is a massive issue in law and meaning it's a it's a if you're in comparative law the fact that 
the Quran recognizes a course of conduct exception blows my mind because this is very advanced for its age. In Roman law, course of conduct exceptions didn't exist in Justinian Roman law. And in the, the old legal systems, the, the idea that there's contracts that are not part of the course of conduct and the contracts that are part of course of conduct and that the actual terms of a contract can be determined uh, by regular practice so that for instance if I if I, I the contract with you and I don't specify time for delivery and but the time of delivery so I don't specify a time of delivery but there is a course of conduct there is a way that business has been done with selling this material between these parties for a long time and I go to that course of conduct and I say well you know look normally the time for delivery is X day on X time so I don't actually need to write it but in fact it is defined by the course of conduct that's pretty again pretty advanced I mean um, It, um, okay, there is an exception that we, I mean, the, the traveling exception, or if you are in circumstances where it's become really an inconvenience to write something, but that, that the exception itself is not what's significant, but what is significant is the the way that Allah explains the law to us, it's not the law, it's the explanation that educates us about why the law. Look, فَإِنْ أَمِنَ بَعْضُكُمْ بَعْضًا فَلْيُؤَدِّ الَّذِي اُتُمِنَ أَمَانَتَهُ وَلْيَطَّقِ اللَّهَ رَبَّهُ وَلَا تَكْتُمُ الشَّهَادَةِ وَمَنْ يَكْتُمُهَا فَإِنَّهُ آثِمٌ قَلْبُهُ so, Allah reminds us that, listen, I'm teaching you to protect yourself through writing. I'm teaching you to have witnesses so that there is a way that we can authentic authenticate signatures or seals or whatever. I know that this is inconvenient for you because many, most of you are illiterate. And it, it, it was obvious that that's going to put a great deal of emphasis on either obtaining those who can write, in other words, getting their help, or that it's going to become a professional as, you know, till, till subhanAllah, my... My grandparents, uh, in a country like Egypt, there used to be professional people that you go, they, they would always sit in front of mosques, and you go and you pay them to write letters for you. Because illiteracy was at such a high rate that people who could write, have good handwriting, you actually go and 
they would sit with, uh, with ink and paper in front of a mosque, and you go and you hire them, and you say, can you write me a petition to the governor? Can you write me a letter to my friend or a brother, whatever, can you... Um, uh, uh, can you and and you pay them for it? And uh, of course, it was foreseeable that there there's that there's that this profession will be born, but also it's going to put a a a, a some pressure towards literacy, so people can actually read, and that's why. And we have ample evidence of that in the Prophet, Salam emphasizing uh, literacy and learning reading and writing as as a, as a jihad as an, an obligation of muslims etc etc but now so write contracts witness contracts involve women in con in in the in the process of witnessing so you know stop excluding women from financial circles Etc. Etc. And then the course of conduct type of uh, 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 issue. And if you are traveling, then you know, or there is hardship, then there is the special circumstance. But what Allah educates us is the underscoring that none of this is worth anything without a manna. So, the principle is as the Quran puts it, that in all situations, it is like me telling you, listen, I, I, I want you to take these precautions. And here are my advice as to this and to this. But then I come and say, you know what, with all the precautions, if your intentions are not good, this is not going to work. You know, I teach you, okay, don't hurt witnesses, don't uh, disabuse your practices of exploitation, of uh, exploitation, of power exploitation, whether by taking advantage of the need of people whether, you know, demanding that, holding not just the, the person who is in need uh, responsible for the debt or the transaction, but also, their, you know, whoever they can bring to, to support, support them, in other, in other words, the witnesses. But I come and tell you, but listen, you know, without Amana here, without honesty and that 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 magical element that if you know that you owe someone an obligation then discharge it none of this is going to work so this is precisely in law what we say good faith right like, you know, in, in law, how, how do you legislate good faith? Even when a judge rules on good faith, the, the reason good faith 
is often uh, uh, there is a famous book called the the death of contract it was written about the common law his author i think is called gilmore it's a book that law students used to read but no more anyway uh, and it talks about the, the fact that judges, among other things, talks about the fact that judges and courts no longer want to rule on good faith. And as a result, very abusive contracts and very unfair contracts are allowed to exist. Why? Because how does a judge rule on a good faith? You know, a psychologist will come and say, stay in your lane. You know, do theology and law uh, because you don't understand good faith. That's psychology, right? Um, so, good faith, that's a psychological thing. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala comes and tells you Allah knows what's in your heart. And without that magical element, it's not going to work. And so that that you know this critical element of taqwa, self-explanatory, and then underscores that so much of the deviance that we witness in financial transactions is that people do not fully attest to what they know to be true. That they suppress the entire truth or some of the truth or fudge the truth. That they say, I don't know or I don't remember or, you know, again, goes back to the good faith not just of the contractors, but the social circle around the contracting process. And when Allah says, وَمَنْ يَكْتُمُهَا فَإِنَّهُ آثِمٌ قَلْبُهُ I remember this from years ago. There was one of Sheikh Wadi, was commenting on this verse, and one of the students that I think was dense, Allahu Alam, but I think he was dense. Um, he he asked Sheikh Wadi. He said, "Well, Allah says, 'For in no means their heart is is impure. Their heart is." sinful said well doesn't this mean that it's a small sin because if it was a big sin that Allah would have said whoever conceals shahada I will burn them in hellfire but if Allah says whoever conceals shahada then their heart is sinful doesn't this mean it's not a big deal to conceal shahada and you know of course Sheikh Wadi was a very nice man he, he was very patient and responded to it very quietly and very patiently, which I don't think I would have done. Um, I probably would have blown my top and started berating the, that guy for his 
idiocy. Um, but the reason I mentioned the story, other than the fact that I remembered it for the first time maybe in 30 years, and remembered the guy's face, but anyway, um, is that, you see, when Allah tells you that this is a remarkable expression. It's like saying that your heart is defective. This is far more troubling if you, if you have real piety. This is far more troubling than a threat that, you know, you might ultimately you know, that th a threat Allah might punish you or might not punish you depending on whether Allah forgives you or not forgives you or whatever. But when Allah says your heart is corrupt, it is like saying, take a deep look inside of yourself because you're not a good human being. To borrow what... Uh, Sheikh Wadi said that if you had, if you have true piety, this would make you lose sleep. I say if you have true piety, this would make your knees shake. So it means my, I am, my heart is corrupt. I am no good. Are my prayers accepted? Are my fasting accepted? This heart is. A a, a a a rotted heart. Okay. And then Allah reminds you, right after this, taking us again back to first principle, that remember that whether you conceal or hide, Allah knows. There's no hiding anything. All of this, all of these technicalities is because you need it as human beings to manage your affairs. But when it comes to Allah's accountability, all of these technicalities are exactly that. They're superficial matters. Because Allah knows. لِلَّهِ مَا فِي السَّمَاوَاتِ وَمَا فِي الْأَرْضِ وَإِن تُبْدُوا مَا فِي أَنفُسِكُمْ أَوْ تُخْفُوهُ يُحَاسِبْكُمْ بِهِ اللَّهِ That whether you conceal it or you, you, or you don't conceal it, you will be held accountable. Okay. Then we reach the very last passage of Surah Al-Baqarah. What follows this and the closing of Surah Al-Baqarah is reaffirmation first. of our basic creed. آمَنَ الرَّسُولُ بِمَا أُنزِلَ إِلَيْهِ مِنْ رَبِّهِ وَالْمُؤْمِنُونَ كُلٌّ آمَنَ بِاللَّهِ وَمَلَائِكَتِهِ وَكُتُبِهِ وَرُسْلِهِ لَا نُفَرِّقُ بَيْنَ أَحَدٍ مِنْ رُسْلِهِ So first, Allah differentiating between the prophets is Allah's business. Allah holding this prophet special, this prophet in, in a special, that's Allah's business. 
you believers, you human beings, as Muslims, you believe in what Allah sent the books of Allah, the revelation, that Allah's revelation is consistent and without even needing to know what is in this revelation prior to the Quran, that it is an affirmation of the affirmation time and time again of the truth of the Quran. And that angels and messengers are a truth, are a haqq. And that when you understand your moral positioning, you are a continuation of the same message that Allah has been sending to human beings from your father Ibrahim to Muhammad But then what follows is one of the most remarkably tender um, tender parts of the Quran. لا يكلف الله نفسا إلا وسعها لها ما كسبت وعليها ما اكتسبت ربنا لا تؤخذنا إن نسينا وخطأنا ربنا ولا تحمل علينا إسرا كما حملته على الذين من قبلنا ربنا ولا تحملنا ما لا طاقة لنا به واعف عنا واغفر لنا وارحمنا أنت مولانا فانصرنا قوم الكافرين so this this amazingly tender dua that Allah teaches us. One of my lasting memories is Sheikh Ghazali, one of his last, I mean, it was, it was just um, shortly, a few years before he died. Uh, he was starting a lecture and then he started he started with a lecture by repeating this dua. And as he was repeating this dua, he cried. And the whole, it was a very big hallway, and all of us were crying. Just in, in, and, and for me, that's an indication of, of, of a man who's, Who, his heart has become the Quran. So what Allah reminds us, and I'll, I'll explain in a second why this comes at the very end, that the principle is that Allah does not ask a soul to bear more than it can. And that accountability and responsibility is individual. And that the prayer is that the hope, the prayer, the aspiration is that you are not weighed down and burdened by the legacy of your forebearers 
that you don't end up being um, punished effectively for what those who came before you have done by having to bear the consequences of their deeds. And that Allah doesn't ask of you more than you are able to do. And that that forgiveness and mercy and that ultimately Allah supports you so that you can persevere in being victorious against those who are your detractors those who are opposed to your path. Now, this long journey in Surah Al-Baqarah, when you look at the final prayer, it is what Allah has been, what Allah started talking about when he started relating or addressing the legacy of the Israelites and educating Muslims to learn from the legacy of the Israelites. And then in this journey with all the prescriptive commands and the laws, Surah Al-Baqarah ends with this supplication Muslim theologians dealt with something, of course, quite obvious. If Allah says your supplication, or you, you first become aware and you pray, that don't, don't, Allah forgive us if we forget or we make a mistake. Allah, don't saddle us with the the mistakes of those of our forebears. Allah, don't put upon us more than we can bear. And Allah, forgive us and have mercy upon us, and so on. If this is the supplication, does this intimate a normative command about how we relate to the laws, how we relate to the law itself. So it's basically Allah saying that what this this prayer is also telling you something about your the ultimate conclusion about your attitude towards the law, and remember the law is a consistent theme in Surah Al-Baqarah, as we'll talk about when we summarize everything. And the majority said, gave a clear yes, that ultimately, a priori, remember that the principle of morality is a taqalluq bi that the, the that we we 
incorporate and we internalize the ethical qualities that are taught to us through the ethical qualities that Allah adopted as describing Allah's self. I have an article about ethics and Islamic law that talks about this if if you're interested in reading the, the uh, you know, it's of course the more um, the, the, the scholastic tradition um, and so then ultimately the law itself must be a, a consistent theme in administering the law is that you do not place upon people more than they can bear. You do not burden people with more than they are able to handle. And that the attitude of Ghufran and Afu and Rahma are consistent themes that the law must aspire to forgiveness and mercy and something that modern Muslims don't talk a lot about and the attitude of the law must be to contribute to the intisar al-muslimin meaning that the law ultimately must contribute to the empowering of Muslims that the law cannot be an instrument of disempowerment for Muslims. So, the law cannot impose upon people more than they can bear. The law, in other, translated in concrete legal terms, that the law cannot be an instrument for hardship. Uh, and a law, and, and not modern Muslims often when the minute you talk about this they jump to the laws of darura the laws of darura of, or necessity are exceptions that are created to respond to special circumstances under narrow narrow set of facts or indivi individualized set of facts but here, these are normative, normative, um, uh, uh, like a normative compass for the law. It is not a matter of the the laws of necessity don't address the ultimate issue of whether, in fact, the law exhibits afwa gufran wa rahma, whether the law exhibits forgiveness and mercy. And it, as in, in the same way that simply the mechanics of the law don't answer ultimately whether the law leads to the empowerment of Muslims or not, and intisar al-Muslimin or not. Now, take a deep breath, because, inshallah, now I summarize Surah Al-Baqarah. So, remember, this is the first long surah 
right after the Hijra. A surah that handled nothing short of the position of Muslims, the trajectory of Muslims, right after the establishment of the polity. Right after Mithaq in Medina, the so-called constitution of Medina, that is negotiated and written. Unfortunately, we don't have a copy of the Mithaq that survived a, a copy that goes back 1400 years. We have just reports or what survived are copies of the original copy and with different, different manuscripts having slightly different terms reported. But anyway, so but after the Mithaq, there notice Surah, Surah al-Baqarah now handles the first critical issue and the Mithaqillah, the, the, the Allah's covenant and who bears Allah's covenant. And it takes us back first in rebutting and challenging the idea that Allah's covenant is held ethnically, racially, or as a matter of entitlement. And it challenges the Ezraelite belief that they are the bearers of Allah's covenant and thus Allah's chosen people. But in doing so, it challenges the idea of its chosen people altogether. And then takes you back to the allegory of Adam and Eve. And that placing of responsibility underscoring the the underscoring that what the element of choice and volition and capacity to understand which which is going to become of course this notion of capacity which sort of underscores the theme of human responsibility and the theme of volition and the theme of choice as justifying even what Allah knows will happen and that Allah knows that human beings will choose what is wrong and because they will choose what is wrong they will do and commit a lot of evil if sad for art 
But yet at a deep philosophical level, the miracle of volition itself the miracle of choice and as Ghazali says it's partaking of something in divinity because it's only the divine that actually has that power justifies the symbolic act of prostration you know not because Allah wants angels or shaitan or, or, or whatever or angels and jinn to worship Adam that the, the symbol of honoring the covenant and the inheritance and this issue, ultimate issue of choice. Then Surah Al-Baqarah takes you to a close narrative about those who were a living example of people who handled the covenant and interacted with the covenant. And in doing so, it also passes through Ibrahim salam as where the 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 patriarch or the father of Tawheed. Why, in part, to tell Israelites, you claim effectively moral ownership of the legacy of Ibrahim, but the legacy of Ibrahim is not yours. The legacy of Ibrahim belongs to Tawheed. That is what it was all about. And it's not about a chosen people, and it's not about a, a, a historical legacy. It's not about the story of a, a, a particular dy historical dynamic that took place in the past. It is about the principle of the Tawheed itself. And then in addressing this the 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 example of the Israelites, which the Surah Al-Baqarah addresses with layers of complexity, because on the one hand it talks about those who received a command to fight and didn't want to fight or those who were liberated and preferred oppression and wanted to go back to their oppressors because they preferred luxury or they preferred um, comforts of life. It talks about those who received, who related to the law in a very pedantic and myopic way, wanting the law to be about clear-cut details and losing sight of the basic principle. It takes you to the whole a, a layered narrative to those who violate clear specific commands, the Sabbath in this case, 
And as a result, Allah abandons them themselves. And as the Quran describes it, they become as if apes, meaning that they live for their own pleasures. And that's it. They're like animals. Um, and it so and it takes you to in, an example of uh, the the Israelites actually f fighting successfully in the story of um, uh, David and his um, uh, his defeat of Jalut and an example at the same time of the type of sacrifice and discipline that is required in the story of the, uh, the river and drinking from the river as on the path to, to battle uh, and so on. And in this in this narrative, what you are seeing is like a narrative about the struggle, life, and its struggles itself. Because when you look at this narrative, and you will find that there are pharaohs everywhere, and there are those who defy, who, those who submit to the pharaohs everywhere. There are those who def want to defy the pharaoh. There are those who will have an opportunity to be liberated, but will choose not to be liberated. There, you will have those who will lose sight of what God's covenant is about and make it about a particular historical struggle or a particular ethnic group or a particular racial group. You will have... All of these are parallels that you can find yourselves in. You know, there isn't just one pharaoh, but there are pharaohs of every every age. There isn't just one David, but there's a David of every age. There isn't just one Jalut, there's a Jalut in every age. There are those that Allah appoints as kings, and they are oppressors, and deserve to be resisted in every age. Okay. In this Surah al-Haya, in this constant struggles of life, Surah al-Baqarah underscores time and again that there are if if underlying foundational uh, uh, anchoring principles. Allah is close. Allah is always close. You go astray when you lose sight that Allah is ever present. And that Allah is always with you. But that Allah is always close and that it is about, always about your relationship to Allah and with Allah 
time and time again, Surah Al-Baqarah takes us to this, it's like saying, nothing will work if you lose sight of this. Now, and notice, as we've talked about, that part of the Ezraite narrative is to also talk about those who tujar kalam or those who um, are you know they, they they are merchants or manipulators of words of talk of the 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 um, the way that speech itself can be manipulated and that although the essence of the covenant relies on the word the most dangerous things that happens to the word and it it, it when the word becomes trapped and cheapened by those who trap it because the word becomes meaningless then part of this Surah Al-Baqarah focuses on this element of duality that you find consistently among those who cheapen the word and that is the role of what the Quran calls al-munafiqun, the, the hypocrites. Those who can speak charismatically, can speak beautifully, but ultimately, when you look at their moral behavior, or can in fact sell people upon to, to accept injustice, to accept what is wrong, to accept what is immoral. And that the dangerous role of the, the manipulators of truth and the manipulators of speech Then Surah Al-Baqarah then takes you through a number of moral themes that it underscores. So it talks about al-dhulm, injustice, and that it is never the case that the unjust can be described as part of God's covenant. Injustice and God's covenant cannot mix. And talks about the sharaha or tama or greed and materialism and the tendency to value things or to 
measure all things by um, selfish standards and standards of me and me alone as an egocentric paradigm. It talks about or cruelty and hearts that no longer can respond to the call of the divine or the call of morality. And uh, the, the danger from, that comes from when this uh, cruelty of the heart or the, the hardness of the heart sets in. Okay. Then it emphasizes to Muslims that this moral path be aware that this moral path ultimately clearly understands that God and to God alone is judgment. And that the practice of claiming that as Christians claim that you know heaven is for them alone or Jews claim that heaven is for them alone is not the Muslim way. The Muslim way is doing what is morally right and saying and accepting that God is meticulously just and is unjust to no one. And understanding the limits of what human beings have competency over. Then after having given the examples of the way that the the, the examples of where of the past using the Israelites as the main example then there is the Quran the Surah Al-Baqarah is going to respond to a series of issues that came up to in Medina responses that are prescriptive that will say do this or do not do this but before doing that, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reminds us that it is not about the mechanics that, yes, there will be prescriptive commands, but understand that it is not about, as the Quran puts it, a qibla or the direction that, that wherever you direct your face, you will find Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So, again, a reminder that law, or at, or at least readying the receiver to understand that it is finding the, a, the path in life is not about the technicalities of al-busala or the compass. 
that yes, we have technicalities of how we face Mecca, but this is not what it's about. Having then laid that foundation, the Quran, the Surah Al-Baqarah proceeds to address a number of issues in response to actual questions that have come up, whether relating to prayer, relating to Hajj, relating to Safa al-Marwa, relating to the principle of punishment, relating to marriage and divorce, the rights of divorcees, the rights of widows, the rights of for support and maintenance and eventually debt and contracts. But the trajectory in all of these, I would submit to you that if you study these laws carefully, the trajectory in all of these is something that if you if you have any reasonable moral foundation, if you if you have even a basic understanding of morality, you would find that the trajectory of all of these laws was the protection of the unprotected and the empowerment of the disempowered not in absolute and ideal terms, but in relational terms, that a problem came up, how can I create, achieve greater equity, greater fairness within the circumstances possible? If you talk about equity in absolute terms, regardless of the facts on the ground, equity can very quickly turn into either provisions of law that are meaningless, that people just completely ignore them, as if done with women witnessing, for instance, or, in fact, idealized law often produces precisely the opposite. Often, when people look at institutions of law or the sociology of law, they ask the question, why is it that judges or lawyers or legal practice, even comparative legal sociology, um, why is it that they, that they often work in such incremental terms and avoid philosophical purity or things that are philosophically pure? And the reason is, is that when you are trying to achieve actual results on the ground that lead to greater sociological equity, you cannot afford 
at a legal level, philosophical purity. You can't just talk in absolute terms and achieve sociological results that are more equitable. But the mistake that Muslims often fall into is precisely the mistakes that so many nations in the past have fallen into. And that is to think, to, to, to imagine that just because the prescriptive, legal prescriptive commands have produced what was sociologically more equitable under a certain set of circumstances, then that's the sum to, some to, total sum of the matter, or sum total of the matter. The philosophical purity is understood at a moral, ethical level, and it mu must remain as an aspiration to law achievable in relative terms as is possible under different times and places. But to take talaq or inheritance or this or that and say, well, you, you know, and that doesn't mean that we just simply ignore the prescriptions and because then we're ignoring the, the, the educational process that Allah sent to us. Allah sent us this so that we can study it to educate ourselves as to the mechanics of reform. And so here, what is critical in this dynamic are these moral foundations that Allah sets for us as ultimate aspirational goals. That everything, the way we relate to the covenant, the way we relate to the principle of taklif, of obligation, and, and this is a very big statement, by the way, the way that we relate to volition and choice. The way that we relate ultimately to the very epistemology, the system of knowledge, of learning from the legal applications is always informed and shaped by these underlying foundations that Allah sets for us. So, what is anchored is this revolutionary idea that you are Ummatul Wasat. And as we said, Ummatul Wasat, the nation, the medium, is always relational. So you, to, to under, always understand, it's like saying to you, what I expect from you is to do what is reasonable. Well, if you are a jerk, you'd say reasonable, what does that mean? I'm just gonna ignore this advice. 
I'm not going to learn anything from it. But if you want to, if you're not a jerk, you say reasonable. Okay, well, I cannot be reasonable unless I am also relational. Because reasonability cannot be defined in absolute terms. It always has to be defined in terms of what the parameters are. So when Allah says that you are Ummatul Wasat and not just Ummatul Wasat just so we can come to Allah and say, look, we were Wasat, but that you have you you this is tied into an obligation that you are to witness upon humanity, then Allah has challenged you to be at the forefront of the moral arc of reasonability. At the forefront of the moral arc of reasonability. Within this is, as we talked about, the extensive discussions about khair and adl and fadl. Goodness, justice, and fadl, benevolence. What is, or as many have said, the al-fadl wal-ihsan, shay'un wahid, that they're the same thing, that the, the benevolence and, and goodness is to go beyond justice. And Allah underscores the role of the kitab as guidance and hikmah as guidance. And we've talked about that. Hikmah, wisdom as guidance. And Allah underscores in this the entire teaching about thinking that there are any instrumentalities that fast-track your relation to, relationship to Allah or mediate your relationship to Allah for you, like law or like institutions of power. That's shafa that we talked about. And Allah underscoring that, remember, in understanding or in as, as this moral foundation that dhulm, not just dhulm, but injustice, but tahut, oppression, and as we said, tuhyan, is to go beyond what each deserves according to the right are inconsistent with Allah's covenant and with whatever the instrumentalities that Allah has given you as you as you think through applying them 
And as in 188, Allah reminds us, blindly surrendering to the hukam, that blindly just saying, well, we surrender our affairs to those in charge. Let them guide us. That your active part is, what, what is the, when you study the seerah and the, the story of the companions of the Prophet wasalam, and, and the, what is the thing that strikes you the most about the so-called golden age, the, uh, the Khulafa or Rashidun, is that people took an actual personal interest in the affairs of everything. People were actually personally involved. The idea of telling people, just trust us. Now, it is naive and childish to think that the instrumentalities that were appropriate to achieve this 1400 years ago, like a woman standing in the mosque telling Omar you're wrong when Omar wanted to put a limit on uh, how, how much women can ask for a dowry, that this is appropriate for our age. The challenge is for our age to come up with instrumentalities that achieve the same thing. Yes, we, we, we can't guarantee that the, the person in, uh, who's ruling is going to be a, a, a Omar who reacts very humbly to a woman reprimanding him. But so what instrumentalities are you going to put in place? That, that's really achieving God's covenant. Not sitting on our behinds and saying, well, you know, لِلَّهِ الْمُلْكِ وَلِلَّهِ الْأَمْرُ just It's all up to Allah. And we should, that, that's not bearing the covenant. And don't forget the most critical element repeated in Surah Al-Baqarah, and it will come back again in Surah Al-Umran, by the way. But in Surah Al-Baqarah, in 177, and in 188, Al-Birr, that, that, that key concept that has been completely ignored by modern Muslims, that Al-Birr is as you recall from 177-189, sorry, we spoke, 177-189, that it is your salah, it is your iman, but it is a relationship to material things. It is taking responsibility for those that are of an immediate charge, but also taking responsibility like your relatives, but also taking responsibility for the disempowered, the masakin, the displaced, the orphans, and so on, and that you spend from what you love, and that you do that you understand that they are not less than you in worth so that if you relate to them in any way but remember that part of al-birr 
is that key element of dignity that in giving you cannot injure their dignity. And if you are going to injure their dignity, then it's better not to give. And a remarkable moral foundation when Allah says, that this path, this dynamic, is, as we said when we talked, it's like we said, it is the searching for nirvana. Oppression, injustice, need, are inconsistent with that spiritual state. A person who learns to be scared will learn hypocrisy. And if you learn hypocrisy, you learn to lie. And it, the idea of silm becomes impossibly elusive. Or like, as we see in the modern age, you oppress people by telling them, if you express an opinion, I will throw you in prison forever. But I will make you happy by bringing in rappers and naked people and, you know, everything that will distract you. That's not silm. That's not silm. Remember what we said about what Sheikh Muhammad Abdu says that if only Muslims understood the narrative of Surah Al-Baqarah, especially particular passage that we talked about, that they would, the idea of despotism would have never been allowed to take root in Muslim societies. And of course, this is a clear, the whole context and discourse in La Ikraha Fiddin, that the idea of coercion itself is a moral problem. Because coercive societies, coercive societies, societies that rely on the instrumentality of law and the threat of punishment, either the actual punishment or the threat of punishment, to obtain people's consent rather than persuasion, are societies in which Immorality will sprout under darkness. People learn to conceal what is there in their hearts, to do what is wrong, but in absolute darkness, and to become morally meek and irresponsible 
And then it is then taking you to this, as I said, re remarkably tender closing of saying this is about immoral path rising to the responsibility of the covenant not being God's chosen people because there are no God's chosen people but being God's people not because you're entitled but because you are morally in fact the embodiment of God's people but this path you must understand that you will not achieve it not just through you cannot achieve it through coercion but you cannot even achieve it if you are ignoring the nature of people and ignoring the sociology of people and ignoring the psychology of people by asking people to bear what they cannot. Now, it's, it's here. Remember the standard of reasonability again. When I say be reasonable, it's different because Allah doesn't tell us how to exactly strike that balance. Strike the balance between being morally upright and not, not using ease or not burdening people as an excuse to do what is immoral. It's a, it's a very difficult balance. And that's precisely what hikmah is. How are you going to strike that balance? That requires an enormous amount of wisdom. Meaning, an enormous amount in modern language, an enormous amount of education. In order to, and, and it cannot be struck by one person. It is, we can't forget what the Quran has taught us about Shura. And about the fact that we need to be able to have a situation where we're not like the pharaohs, but where if people are starting to lean towards the wrong path they can be corrected by their sisters and brothers so it if if the if the atmosphere is oppressive and suffocating then the chances that you can actually strike that battle it becomes far more elusive and far more difficult So it is not an exaggeration to say that Surah Al-Baqarah, in its first revelation, took Muslims its, towards an entire, their entire attitude towards life. Because if you find, if you search on Surah Al-Baqarah, you will, if you read through it enough times, you will find it's so at different parts it 
bespeaks a parallel to something you've experienced in life. And you will say, oh, I've experienced this, depending on when you read it in your life. Uh, oh, I felt this. Morality and law. Morality and law. The toughest challenges that confront, that have confronted human beings ever since human beings have become literate enough to articulate these two concepts. Although I suspect they've always innately felt them. Um, how do we strike that balance? And that's what Surah Al-Baqarah is about. Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. Okay, I'm going to call it. And Alhamdulillah, we finished Surah Al-Baqarah. Grace will... Now you have to summarize Surah Al-Baqarah all over again. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. God help me. <laughs> this was so incredible. Okay, so I, I was just scribbling, I mean, literally seven or eight pages just on the summary portion. And, you know, started to take notes from the beginning. Oh my God. Um, and you feel like you've been buried under a, a mountain. Um, first of all, I, I, you know, there are no words to express. Um, you have to appreciate genius and hard work, right? I mean, so in the last eight pages, whenever we started this summary, you know, I mean, it's just striking. It's like when, when you see someone summarizing 13 days, Surah Baqarah, like a symphony, pulling in all the different pieces. And even the fact, I mean, it's like, I can't even, you know, like you write it down and you can't keep track of it. But to watch someone who obviously has dedicated an entire lifetime to studying this and internalizing it and then being able to prepare and present it to us in this way, I mean, you just cannot find this anywhere else. I mean, I, you know, it's not fair, you know, I mean, it's, it's like seeing a Mozart in our time, you know? And like when I, I, I just a side story, you know, like I, I was curious, I don't know if I talked about this before, but I was looking around on, you know, to see other Muslim organizations or places where people were sharing tafsir. And I think I had found, you know, someone um, presenting, I think it was Surah Madathir or something like that, or Mutafafin over five days, which is a short surah, you know, for us, we covered it in like a day. And then, you know, to see like the difference between what we were able to achieve in this just one session, just in the summary portion, is unbelievable. I mean, this is something that you could literally spend your entire lifetime studying just, you know, one portion of what we covered in this surah. Um, I think that the, the gift that you've given us, um, like, I don't think I've ever understood. Well, I mean, to be honest, I mean, I've read Surah Baqarah um, and the Quran and, 
you know, when you don't have a way to understand its entirety, you really only understand verses. And I think that's how, you know, Muslims tend to like interact with the Quran in general. It's just a verse by verse engagement. But to take the longest surah and then, you know, navigate it and present it to us in a way that we understand. I mean, like this is truly, um, this is truly God creating, like telling us, this is the answer. How This is how we should create life. How you get to nirvana, right? I mean, we need our own term for nirvana, but in, you know, sim, I mean, um, but it's like, how do you create sort of a, a perfect society and perfect in the sense that it's a way that human beings, it's so sensitive to, it's something that only a creator could give you, right? I understand how I created you. I understand you're all different. You're all unique. You all deserve to be empowered. You all deserve to have dignity. I understand that you're not gonna give each other dignity, but if you're going to do that, and if you're gonna be among the few people that are committed to this path of reasonableness, um, and and nuance and light and beauty. Here's here's how you do it. And but it's there's there's just it's like such a symphony of of ideas and and concepts new and you know and eternal and primordial. Um, so you know like even I'm just thinking in terms of overarching things. You know we hear a lot about how the arc of just or the arc the moral arc of the universe bends towards justice right is this like expression that people understand but like through surah bakara it's like the idea of the moral trajectory bends towards beauty and reasonableness and is for us to define relatively like bit by bit relationally you, you write about this in reasoning with god and it's it's like God has laid out this moral trajectory that is aspirational. And here are the tools, and here's the education, and here's how you can achieve this step by step in whatever time you're living in. So if you're 1,400 years ago, here's how we make an in incremental change that allows you to set the moral trajectory to something more beautiful. And then here now 1,400 years have advanced, and here we are today, and all of these lessons are just as relevant, just as intuitive, just as profound. And it's like, okay, now we've made some progress on that moral trajectory, but we have such a long way to go. And we've forgotten these principles. And here we are, now we can recapture like these things that God is telling us in Surah Baqarah to get on that moral trajectory again. Although the irony is that, you know, before the, I don't think anyone understand, no one, no one got this message. No one got this understanding of Surah Baqarah until you laid it out for us. Um, it's just, it's so, so profound. Um, and I think just to like today, you know, oh my God, there's just so much to say. So it's a really, um, like starting today, let's just start with what we covered um, about the idea of this higher order normative command and even helping us understand like how our modern empirical mind um, has a hard time understanding things like abstract, like just be kind and just forgive debt, you know, or, or like um, trying to think um, in, a, in, a, in a moral way where you can recognize someone's morality and have that affect you 
um, like if you met a merchant, you know, 1400 years ago and you see, or you know, that this person operates in such a beautiful way, they have such a beautiful character that that's an invitation for you to even think about what, what faith do they follow versus our mindset today, which is so much about, you know, I need to see it, I need to touch it, give me the rule. Um, and, you know, what, why would I forgive someone's debt? You know, this is just, um, and just like highlighting that as an idea that even for us to understand this chronic message, we have to recognize the empiricism that's baked into our time and try to look beyond that to understand, you know, to get at that abstract notion of being kind and, and you know, accepting the principles that the Quran is telling us. Um, and just the fact that we, ethics has been reduced to, as you said, black letter law, and that we, you know, the attitude oftentimes in teaching ethics is, well, let's just check it off the box, get it done, let's move on, because we can't talk about spirituality um, and, or, you know, God forbid mention the word God, because that's just not acceptable in our secular world. And how um, other religions have basically retreated. And so for us with this message that we received today, this is an opportunity for Muslims to, to add back to this narrative of, you know, I mean, ethics requires a spiritual engagement. It has to speak to you as a human being. and has to speak to, you know, your intuitive nature. Um, so, and then, I mean, oh gosh. Um, you, I mean, there's nothing, you know, you gave such a beautiful summary, there's no point in me going through all of that. But I think the thing that is just, again, striking is that God anticipated everything that we would need. There's everything in this surah alone for us to revolutionize how Muslims can interact with our world today. You know, we, it obviously highlights the problems we have in understanding law and how we understand morality, um, and even understanding, you know, how to how to honor the dignity of individuals, and it's it's so beautiful because it's like it starts with how do we empower and recognize, you know, the beauty of each individual. So and and you know this egalitarian idea that you can be a chosen person of God based on your actions, based on your ethics. It's not about ethnicity, it's not about entitlement, it's not about, you know, anything um, other than what's inside and what you're able to do. So at the individual level, okay, we've been empowered. We've been, you know, basically given license to, to elevate. And then at, you know, at a communal level or a community level, how we need to empower people, you know, empower the disempowered, protect the unprotected, um, you know, build a society where people can thrive and then how we deal with power and money um, and not just giving in to the injustice um, and that that's not going to hold water with God. And then working basically then ultimately to achieve this ultimate nirvana. I mean, it's like, okay, that's the entire world, right? and so much nuance at every level. Um, and then the education, that obviously you can't achieve these things without intelligence, piety, education, and the whole idea that um, we talked about, you know, wisdom meaning mastering necessary knowledge. So you have to master the epistemology of your age. 
um, to be able to operate at this level and figure out what is reasonable and what is beautiful. There's just so much here we could just, I mean, there's so much more that I, I'm sure that <laughs> we could all sit here and discuss for the next, you know, 10 years. But to, to have all of this literally at our fingertips in a summary in less than an hour is just, it just speaks to your mastery, your, your, you know, intelligence, piety, dedication over a lifetime. Because obviously these things you can't just read in a book and figure out in even a year or two or any, I mean, this is a lifetime of work. And I, it's like, we're so blessed to be here to receive it. And, you know, if, if we even understand just a small portion of what you conveyed, um, I think we're all so much better off. I know like where we were at the beginning of Surah Bakara, knowing nothing. <laughs> I, mean, I remember like, oh my gosh, I'm so excited. We're gonna start in Surah Bakara, knowing nothing. And then now 13 days later, it's like the world has changed. And alhamdulillah, thank you so much for, for sharing your gift with us. And um, inshallah, may we receive it appropriately and live up to, I think, the, you know, the burden of responsibility now that we have this knowledge. And um, whether it's changing our lives or sharing it with others, clearly um, Islam and Muslims need this so badly um, as a point of dignity, as a point of survival as a point of fighting Islamophobia and may we all play our, our part with whatever we were able to receive. So thank you so, so much. Um, anybody want to add anything? <laughs> no, okay. <laughs> thank you so much. Um, send me your questions. I'm looking forward to, um, you know, a whole, uh, you know, engagement again, just, you know, next Wednesday, inshallah. So my email, grace at usuli.org. Send your questions my way. We will do our best to get through, um, you know, as many of them as we can. And thank you. I hope you guys are as affected as I am. I, this has been just an incredible, incredible time um, with Surah Bakra. Alhamdulillah. Thank you so much. You guys have a wonderful rest of the weekend. Inshallah, we'll see you Wednesday. Assalamu alaikum.